Well, last week we hit pause in our sermon series through the book of Acts so that I could do a two-sermon series that I've titled God's Call to God's People during a time of crisis. I think we could all agree, young, old, doesn't matter your political persuasion, whatever. This is horrible. We are in a time of crisis. What we're not all agreeing on is, so what should we do? A lot of confusion. Not that we all look exactly alike, but folks, the people of God should be listening to the voice of God that causes them to live and act radically different than other people in the midst of chaos and crisis. And so I told you, I think there's no better place to hear the voice of God than from the Sermon on the Mount, where our Savior unpacks for us what it looks like to be the people of God who live for the kingdom of God and his glory. So last week, we just dug into the Beatitudes and looked at one, that he's called us to be peacemakers, not provokers. Woo! We got a lot of provoking, not promoters of an agenda, peacemakers. Somebody needs to bring something different to the table. Peacemakers, because the Prince of Peace lives in us. But now today, I want to call you to dig in with me to how he's taught us to pray. Peacemakers and people of prayer, but not just praying any way you want. How did he teach us to pray? So let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount again. Jump into Matthew chapter 6 with me and begin following along in verse 5. Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, he's assuming you will. You'll pray. But he's like, let me help you know how to pray when you pray. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you've shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. Oh, a sweet phrase coming up. For your father knows. When we pray, we're not informing him of anything. Your father knows the things you have need of before you ask. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not 
forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. All human beings long for revolution. Don't we? Because we long for change. Being created in the image of God means that it doesn't matter whether you're young, old, black, white, your political persuasion, education, every human being has this sense deep inside that cries out, this world is broken. You don't even have to be a Christian to figure that out. It's broken and needs to be fixed. It's broken. Something needs to change. We long for revolution because we long for change because we're created in his image and have a huge sense of brokenness. And so history is littered with human revolutions all throughout history. But when you take a closer look, you'll see that very few revolutions, human revolutions, ever produce what they promise. In fact, most revolutions end with the conditions being worse than what they were trying to replace. Why? Why is that? I'll tell you why. Because human revolutions can never produce what the kingdom of God and King Jesus is doing right now and will ultimately do in a way that is radically different than how human revolutions try to bring it about. And so that's why I'm calling us to focus on the Lord's prayer. You realize this prayer is a radical prayer? It's not a like, put on your house shoes, get a warm cup of milk and just sit there toasty warm praying. This is a disturbing prayer, a revolutionary prayer that could turn this world upside down. So I'm calling us to focus on the Lord's prayer because even though it's the shortest prayer in the Bible and you can read it aloud in 20 seconds, I believe it could turn this world upside down and change people. You're like, good, I got a whole list. Let me finish. And change people, starting with the people who pray it. Do you realize prayer, one of the best things about prayer, is it changes us. Not just the people around us and not just circumstances. When you pray, especially when you pray the way he taught us to pray, it changes you. So, if prayer changes us, and I believe it does, what could you expect to happen in your life if you started praying the way Jesus taught us to pray? That's the question I want to answer. What could you expect to happen in your life if you start praying the way Jesus taught us to pray? Here's the first thing. Number one, you start praying the way Jesus taught us to pray, you'll be reminded continually that you belong to a family and have a good father. Whoo! You belong to a family and have a good father. You're not an orphan. You're not cut off. You're not on your own. Oh, in the words of the black eyed peas, we got people living like they ain't got no mamas. Caught up in the drama. Where is the love, y'all? Where is the love? 
Oh my goodness, I would say we got people living like they ain't got no heavenly father. They said, Father, Father, give us some guidance from above. That's the black eyed peas. He's given us guidance from above. It's time for at least the people of God to want to hear it and live it. Our father has not left us on us our own to figure this out. The first thing that starts to happen to you when you pray the Lord's Prayer is you are reminded, which would settle you when people don't think they have a father, when they don't think they belong in a family, they live poorly. We are to be the people that have the security of knowing I'm loved, I belong, I have a father. I'm loved, I belong, I have a father. Doesn't matter what your biological family was like. This, this changes how you view life and how you treat others and how you act and talk in the midst of chaos. So did you notice something strikingly absent? Because I'm pushing family. You belong to a family. Did you notice something strikingly absent from this model prayer? Have you ever noticed it? There is no first person singular pronoun anywhere in it. There's no I, me, my, mine. We got a lot of that going on, right? Hi, me, my, mine. I, me, my, mine. I, me, my, mine. And we think as Christians, we can just keep those pronouns and pray that way. He said, when you pray, pray our father. Why would he say that? Because folks, when Jesus saves you and makes you his own, he calls you into the family of God and teaches us that our basic identity now is not an I, but a we. 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 That's why we've all been hurting so badly when for 17 weeks it was like online streaming only. So glad we could still listen to a sermon. But it's hard to have a sense of we when you cannot be together. This is essential to the Christian life. We're a we, we're a we, we're a we. Not I, not I, not I, but we. Therefore, here's what it means. It's not all about you. And it's not all about me. It's all about us glorifying God together now. Which means it can't always be your way. Oh. We prefer each other. We consider what would be the greater good for everyone concerned. Not just me. Not just me. Not just me in my opinion. We. Look at verse 9 again. In this manner therefore pray. Our Father in heaven. Every time you pray the Lord's Prayer, you are reminded you belong to a family and you have a father. And that's a word worth noting. In a world of broken families where there's no fathers, present but absent fathers, and abusive fathers. Father. He doesn't say our king, our creator, our great potentate. Even though all of that and more is true. He says, pray this way. Our, say it. Father. Do you realize Jesus was the first person to ever call God Father in the Bible? 
It was an incredible thing to do, to refer to God in a way that was so familiar and intimate. In fact, when Jesus taught us to call God Father, it shocked everyone around and still shocks people today. This is another one of those things that distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. Many other religions have a grasp of the, of the sense of God is big. God is almighty. He's mysterious. He's incomprehensible. He's scary. He's powerful. Only Christianity also adds to that. And he's our, say it, father. He calls us sons and daughters who, it gets even better, who didn't deserve it, but were adopted in, who used to be enemies, and he's made us your, his son and daughter, so that he's your father. You do realize, this is one of the things that, that, that Muslims, Islam, goes nuts over. Not just who Jesus is and th- did he die. They've got a problem with all that. They've got a huge problem with us calling God father. They say you should never, ever, ever call God Father, you, here's what they'll say. You don't have the right to do that because that kind of intimacy and familiarity is absolutely inappropriate for someone who is so glorious and holy and omnipotent and incomprehensible like God. And yet Jesus purchased that right for us when he died and rose again, which is why Rome, which is why John chapter one, verse 12, bonus verse, not in your outline. John 1, 12 says, but as many as received him to them, he gave the say it, say it again, right to become children of God. We're adopted sons and daughters who can call God father and even call God daddy or Abba, according to Romans chapter eight. That was the Aramaic, intimate, familiar, down to earth term for daddy, papa, not just father. Oh, father, daddy. Every time you pray the Lord's prayer, you will be, if you pray it the way he told you to pray, you'll be reminded, I belong to a family. I have a good father. Stop living like you don't have a father, that you're not cared for, that you haven't been claimed, that you don't belong. Never mind what the world has done to you or where you are in this temporal world. If you are a believer You are a son or daughter of the God of the universe who loves you dearly and is willing to be familiar and intimate with you because of Jesus Christ. What he did for us, that way it can never be taken from you because it's not based on you to begin with. There's some good things we have in this life, but we all know, but it could end, but it could end. I could do something stupid and it could be taken from me. This is not based on you. Therefore, can never be taken from you because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, yes, and forever. Because he doesn't change your adoption and standing before God calling him daddy never changes. Somebody say, thank you, Lord. That's the first thing that will start to happen. And can you see, I hope, 
how that would help this whole situation. Somebody needs to settle down and know they're spoken for. They belong. They have a father. Number two, when you start praying the way Jesus taught us to pray, you'll be surrendered to something bigger and focused on something eternal. We have got people so focused on the right here, right now, right here, right now, latest breaking news, what's burning, who's screaming, what's happening, what's my camp, my tribe saying, how loud's the echo, the echo, the echo, the echo. Oh my goodness, I don't expect the world to do anything different. I do expect the people of God to do something different. We are never to get sucked like a magnet down to right here, right now. We're always to have something bigger in mind and focused on something eternal. Doesn't mean that we don't make a difference here. Not what I'm saying. But you'll make the best difference here if you never only think about here. And if you get caught up in here, you'll start acting like those who ain't got mamas or daddies spiritually. I need you to live like you have a father because you haven't forgotten there's something bigger and you're focused on something eternal, eternal. Look at it with me in verse 10. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. What is Jesus asking for right here? What is he teaching us to pray when we say that? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Well, the kingdom of God has to be understood as something that's already here on earth, but not yet fully realized. So when Jesus came the first time 2,000 years ago, when he took on flesh and stepped into our world, he inaugurated the kingdom of God and said, the kingdom of God has come. It's in your midst. But it's not fully realized. He came as a humble, suffering servant. He arrived in a manger. People looked right past him. It wasn't what they expected. It wasn't what they wanted. But he inaugurated the kingdom. It's here. And when he comes again, as king of kings and lord of lords, nobody will miss it. He'll split the sky from the east to the west. And he will arrive as king of kings and lord of lords. And he will establish the first and only perfect, fully just kingdom. That's what's coming. That's what's coming. And so right now, the people of God who live for the kingdom of God are at war with spiritual darkness. You say, okay, I've sensed that. Here's what I want you to understand. What are the weapons we should use in this war? We're at war with the darkness of this world as we, as we carry out his great commission to make disciples to make disciples until the promise of revelation eleven fifteen is fully realized where it says there'll be a loud voice in heaven that shouts the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our god and of his christ and he shall reign forever 
and ever. There is a reason that the most famous song in Handel's Messiah is the hallelujah chorus that's based on this passage. Because every human being longs for a hallelujah, a hallelujah, a kingdom. Make it right. Make it last forever and ever. You guys, it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. And the best way for us to be a part of what he's doing to expand his kingdom and get in. We're not trying to make anything happen, but get in on what he's doing is to talk about the king and share this incredible message of hope, the gospel. Don't hear me saying you can't vote and get involved to some degree in a political endeavor. Don't hear me saying you shouldn't care about hunger, poverty, injustice, and do some humanitarian things. Do hear me saying both these camps need to recognize that is so temporary and changes nobody's eternal destiny. Both camps need to move towards the middle and do more of talking about King Jesus and sharing the gospel. Because I hope you realize we got lost people over here that are happy to continue this political endeavor. We got lost people over here that are happy to do all the good, make clean water, change the, make lives better. I'm not dissing those of you that are into this, but I just want you to know lost people do this. If the people of God don't do what only the people of God would ever do, talk about King Jesus and share the gospel, nobody's doing it. And that's the only thing that will change the eternal destiny of a lost soul. One heart at a time. We only, cha- we only get in on what God's doing to expand the kingdom of God by sharing the word of God. The people of God, filled with the spirit of God, should be using the word of God to bring a good news message in the midst of this mess. And so until that day, we need to guard against the temptation forever. The people of God have been tempted. You can read church history. This is not a new thing. Some of you that are younger, I want to just say to you, this is not a new thing. I was alive in the 70s and 80s when it was like, oh, liberation theology in South America. It's all about, all about, all about, all about. God does not call us to completely be consumed with right here, right now injustices and say, that's the gospel. That's the kingdom. It is not. So as long as there've been Christians for decades, theological liberals have talked about the kingdom of God as if it's something we can engineer and bring about through humanitarian efforts. As if God is nothing more than a cheerleader that cheers us on in all we're doing for him. But, hear me, conservatives have been just as guilty of trying to domesticate God's kingdom by confusing it with a particular party or political group. So convinced that God is absolutely on their side. Both are missing the truth. Come to the middle, come to the middle, come to the middle. Be as political as you want, but be that person that aggravates everybody. But like, dude, why do you keep talking about Jesus? We don't need Jesus. We just need, nope, because you're a Christian. 
get over here and do whatever humanitarian thing you might think is like, oh, Christians should be involved in this, but you ought to be the one pointing out the excess and say, but not that way and not that, and I can't buy into that. I agree with people created in the image of God. We should, but you should be so, your allegiance should be to Jesus to a degree and another kingdom that you make people uncomfortable in whatever camp you're in because you do not altogether buy into it because you're a Christian and a citizen of another kingdom. So what are we actually praying when we say your kingdom come, your will be done? I hope you realize this prayer is wonderful and dangerous at the same time. Do you realize your kingdom come, your will be done is a prayer of, some of you aren't gonna like this, surrender and giving up power. Oh, we've got Christians that have decided, oh no, no, prayer is a power and it's how I get God to now do. This is what I was always, always about and I'm a Christian now and now I've got prayer that can make God, I put God in a headlock and then I'll start fasting. Now he's gotta do it. You guys, when he said, pray like this, your kingdom come. Your will be done. That's a prayer of surrender and giving up power and saying, God, I don't know, but you do. So often we're guilty of thinking we know exactly what God would do. What is it? What I want right now. We're so arrogant. Let me challenge you. There's an election in November. Do you know that? Here's a way you can know whether you've got the heart that trusts God and are more concerned about another kingdom and real life change of real people who are on their way to hell, would you be willing to pray? Vote how you want to vote. I will too. But then pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done the morning we wake up. If it's the person I don't want in office and you, oh God, are sovereign and know that that person in office even though they're not going to do the things that I think would be great for America and freedom and finances and whatever. What if that person in office that you don't want in office would actually be more likely to accomplish God's purposes by making things so horrible that human beings would say, oh my goodness, there's got to be more to life. I need God. I need a savior. Oh, Would you be willing to pray, Lord, do whatever would bring the most people to faith in Christ. Do whatever would bring about the largest harvest. Do whatever would bring about revival. What if someone's in office that restricts our Christian freedoms even more to the point that we're persecuted and threatened that would cause lost people to say, why do you still believe this when it's not good for you? That's when people start coming to Christ. I hope you realize not during times of prosperity and ease. When they kicked out all the Christians and missionaries from China, everybody said, oh, 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 what's going to happen now? What happened? It exploded with millions coming to faith in Christ because individual Chinese Christians still lived it despite the hardships and it caused thousands to come to faith in Christ. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Now, when you believe that, you can wake up the morning after the election and say, 
Well, all right, God. Go, God. There's nobody ever in power apart from the sovereign decree and purpose of God. You realize that? Read your Bible. And so say, go, God. I can sleep good. Instead of, oh, we didn't get out the vote. We didn't get out the Christian vote. Shut up. You know I want you to vote. But when you act that way, you act like God is not sovereign and in control and accomplishing his purposes. And you start looking like you ain't got no father. But you do. And like you don't have a higher calling. Something bigger. Something eternal. So when you start praying the way he told us to pray, you start surrendering to something bigger. And you stay focused on something eternal. Eternal. When you pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for a history to come to a close. We're praying to see all the nations rejoice in the glory of God. We're praying to see Christ honored in every human heart. We're praying to see the mercy of God poured out on lost sinners. We're praying to see Satan bound, evil vanquished, and death thrown into the lake of fire. We're praying to see every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what we're praying when we pray your kingdom come, your will be done. Bring it, God. Bring it, God. More of your kingdom as you save more lost people. Regardless of which political party's in office, just save people, glorify your son, and change hearts one at a time. And would you be pleased to use me in any way you'd like? It's a radical prayer that carries incredible hope because it's fixed on someone outside of this world and an agenda that's bigger than fix this now. Oh my goodness, I'm going to lose my mind. Number three. What starts to happen when you pray the way he taught us to pray? Number three. You will be living out the gospel as you forgive over and over and over Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. And forgive us our debts, sin debts. Oh, crucial phrase next. We love the first part. Yes, please forgive me of all my sin. As we forgive our debtors. It all goes together. See, if give us this day our daily bread emphasizes our biggest physical need. Forgive us our debts. Debts emphasizes our biggest spiritual need. Folks, our biggest problem, our biggest problem is not a lack of education or opportunity or ability to express ourselves or some kind of unmet social need. Our biggest problem, black, white, young, old, Republican, Democrat, whatever, is the sin problem that separates us from a holy God and keeps us at war with so many people around us. That is our biggest problem. And so this is a gospel-centered prayer because it brings it right back to the heart of what Christianity is all about. About. So this cry for God to forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us, 
whoo, is radical and shocking to the citizens of this kingdom who have not been born again. They can't make sense of that. That's wrong. You shouldn't do that. You can't do that. When you forgive, you're acting like what they did is okay. You're enabling them. You are never more like your savior, never, than when you forgive. You're right on it. You're never more right on the gospel than when you forgive. Because the citizens of this kingdom, you guys, are characterized by selfish ambition, self-promotion, retaliation, hate, and revenge. Which makes this gospel-centered forgiveness all the more radical. Because I hope you realize, the flesh cannot fake this. You cannot fake for you cannot do this without God's spirit in your life. You cannot forgive. You can't fake that. You can add church attendance to your life. You can clean up your language. You can do any number of things that you think equates Christianity. Now, I've I've, I've straightened out my life a little bit. You can do all that without God. You cannot forgive. The flesh will not go there. You can't fake it. You have to be born again and filled with the spirit of the resurrected Jesus Christ who humbled himself and laid down his life and set aside his rights to forgive sinners who did not deserve it. When did he do this for us? Oh, when we were changing our lives and saying we're sorry. While, but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still, say it again, Christ died for us. You say, but she's not sorry. Doesn't matter. She doesn't see what she's done. Doesn't matter. We forgive because he has forgiven us And so it's worth noting, if you're saying, hmm, this is hard, he knows that. Here's the other thing I think is worth noting. Of everything he taught us to pray, this is the only piece that he comes back to and felt the need for some additional commentary. Did you notice that? It's almost like he anticipates our, yeah, but surely you don't mean, you can't mean, if you knew, no. He comes back to this, not anything else. This, look at it in verse 14, 15. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father in heaven forgive yours. Do not get confused here. He's not teaching the way you become a Christian is you start forgiving other people and then he'll forgive you. It's not what he's teaching. He's not teaching you can lose your salvation. Oh, I got saved. He forgave me. I was living for Christ. And I hit a hard spot where someone hurt me and I stopped forgiving. And from that point forward, none of my sins were forgiven. He's not teaching that. He is teaching if you don't forgive, you're not born again. You've never experienced the forgiveness of a holy God because people who have experienced 
people who have experienced the richness of God's mercy and his lavish grace and his unending kindness and forgiveness for all their sins, past, present, and yet to be committed, cannot not extend that to other human beings on a horizontal level. When that happens in your life and that grips you and that kind of grace and mercy is coursing through your life, you don't just get colored pencils and mark up your Bible. You don't just go all Christian music and get rid of ACDC. You start forgiving. That's what gets the world's attention. That's what's radical. That's what the flesh can't do without the spirit of God. And so... Let me help you here. As a pastor, I have people grab me all the time. One of the, one of the biggest things that comes up is assurance of salvation. Oh my goodness, I'm not sure I'm saved. I'm still not sure I'm saved. I'm still not sure I'm saved. How do I know? How do I know? And typically people want to comb over their prayer. Did I pray it just the right way? Did I say the right words? Am I doing enough good things now? Am I doing all the right things? Let me help you. Set all that aside. Do you forgive Every time you forgive, you could settle in with an assurance of, oh my goodness, only the son of God living in me and the sense of his grace and mercy and kindness to me would enable me to do this. Oh, thank you. I'm his child. I'm his child. I'm taking what he gives me and I'm bending it out horizontally to other sinners around me. Oh, thank you, Lord. All kinds of areas of my life that still need to grow, need to be improved, need to. But this is the radical calling card of Christians that gets the attention of the world. They forgive. But don't hear me saying it's easy. There's lots of things in this life that he's said, this is who you are now and this is what you can do. And when you try to do it, you say, oh my, that's actually really hard. He didn't say it'd be easy. But you have the capacity to do this now. I think it's just, I hate it. Christians. I've been a pastor 33 years now. It's like, they love to quote Philippians. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me when they're having a garage sale, when they're playing basketball and they want to win. How about applying that verse to forgiveness? He said, you can do all. I can't. I can't. Listen to me, friend. You're either using the wrong verb because if you can't, then you are still an orphan in darkness. You have no daddy. And you're still a slave to sin and need Jesus. Feel free to say, oh my, that's going to be hard. And I'd say with you, yeah, it is. Because you still have this flesh that will buck and balk and resist and scream and say, don't, 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 don't. But you've got the spirit of God in you saying, how can you not? I've been so good to you. My mercy's new every morning. My grace is unending. My kindness to you. You were an enemy. I've adopted you. You're a daughter. You're a son. You have a robe of righteousness. You have an eternal inheritance. Yes, you can. That you can. Just this past week, a woman in our own church told me one of the most amazing stories of forgiveness. But you will hear how hard it was. And you'll hear how it did what I'm saying. It put on display the gospel and Jesus in a way. They don't care that you play Christian music in the car and they're like, oh, I got to find out more about that. 
when people forgive, they say, what is that? Because I can't do that. I have her permission to share this. She says, I wanted to let you know that God has done what God has done since we last spoke. And I'd forgotten that we ever spoke, but I was like, wow, yay. As you know, I have an extended family member who drug my name through the dirt to other family members and anyone else who would listen. I felt so wronged by her and there was no hint of repentance. I also felt that my own wrongdoing seemed so insignificant in comparison to hers. As a pastor, let me give you a little insight here. Everybody thinks that. (laughs) Moving on. But after I spoke with you and you encouraged me to confess my own wrongdoing with no regard as to whether they ever apologized, I knew you were right. But I couldn't actually proceed until my heart was right. And that took months of prayer. Okay, so it wasn't easy. She didn't just say, oh, thanks for telling me that. I'll do that today. But she wrestled in prayer to get there by the spirit of God. It resonated with her heart because he lives in her. That yes, this is right. Let's get there. The hurt had sunk in so deep that I wasn't perceiving as clearly as I should the depth and breadth of the effect of my own sinful behavior. So it took some time. But when I came to the point of being able to write a letter of confession and repentance, it was as if God shined a light and gave this whole area of my heart a final wipe down. So that my heart was pure in my repentance without any expectation from her. In fact, when she received my letter, she didn't believe it was genuine because it was so radical. After reading my letter, she called me to speak on the phone and grilled me for about a half hour looking for hints of pride or deceit. After the phone call, she actually jumped on a plane three days later because she still didn't believe it and wanted to talk face to face. We sat for three hours because she had five typed pages of questions for me, rehashing our past interactions, old letters and texts, as well as the letter I'd just written. She wanted to see a thorough change of heart and perspective in me. And she did. Not once did I point out or even want to point out any of her wrongdoing towards me. My mantra and prayer the whole time was to put on display the gospel because God had so worked in my heart that I truly wanted nothing more than for the gospel to shine. And it did. When we finished talking, she looked at me and exclaimed, this is an absolute miracle. People don't change like this. And so I had the privilege of sharing what God had done in my life and how he's in the business of changing hearts. The relationship that we have now is amazing. And I have her respect, which allows me an opportunity to continue to love her and share my faith. In short, it was all because I got out of the way and let God work his word in my life, which has been so freeing. Listen to what she says in conclusion. But I had to give up my right to be right. And my desire to see vengeance where I had been wronged. I also learned to see the gospel shining as far more important than how I am being perceived. Repentance is a gift. May you have the privilege of seeing much more repentance in those you are shepherding. And thus see the gospel shine. Wow, that's 
That's the heart of Christianity and the gospel and our Savior on display that will get the attention of the world. Not your hate, not your screaming, not how logical you are with your political position, not how you back them into a corner or bully them or call them names. None of that. Peacemaker. Prayer warrior. Forgiving. Just as Christ has forgiven us. And so here's what I'm calling our church family to do now. We're still not done. So there's my two messages, but here's the takeaway now. I'm asking every single person that claims Grace Fellowship as home to do three things for the next 30 days. Read your Bible. You're like, you've said that before. I know, but you don't do it. So I'm going to keep saying it. I read an article. Guess what? Since January, from January to today, 13.1 million, not just proclaiming Christians, evangelical Christians that are the ones that say they engage and take Bible study seriously, 13.1 million Christians have stopped engaging and reading their Bible. I would believe it because I've never seen such abysmal behavior. They're on blogs instead. They think things are so bad, they got to read, read, read about that. No, no, no. You need to read your Bible. So read your Bible. Then I want you to pray using the Lord's Prayer as your model. Now, if it's new to you, it's fine for you to just literally pray that over and over until you kind of get the framework of what are our prayers supposed to look like. But ideally, you use it as a model and you branch out and you just do what that phrase is saying. But use the Lord's Prayer as a model. And then number three, fast. I am calling our church family to fast for 30 days. And I know when you hear the word fasting, we typically think of food or beverage. And you can do that. So when you go to our website, right on the homepage, right below the box that says sermon outline, there's a box that says prayer and fasting resources. I've got a commitment card that's for nobody but you and God. And many of the choices I put on there had to do with food, fast a meal, fast whatever. But my first box I put on there was, I would like to encourage you to fast social media. Some of you are shaking already like an alcoholic. <laughs> like, oh my goodness, how, how, how would I know what's going on? How can I, I won't be able to stay this angry. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I won't know what my little tribe and echo chamber are saying. I, I know, I know. That's what I'd love for a bunch of you to shut it down. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, podcast, whatever it is that is keeping you so consumed and stirred up. Why? So that you can hear the voice of God. You realize the purpose of fasting is to reduce, whether it's food, beverage, or social, what is temporary and ordinary so that you can focus more on what is eternal and extraordinary. You want to see transformation in your life? Then you have to be willing to dethrone the little God of nonstop, stir it up, twist the truth, worldly information that's coming at you day and night. You want to see transformation? Dethrone the God of worldly information and come back to the living, eternal, unchanging, settling truth. Of God's word. 
and spend time with him. Now, regarding Bible reading, here's what I'm, I'm asking. Consider either reading Psalm, one chapter of Psalms a day, or one chapter of Luke. Because Lord willing, I'm going to start the book of Luke in the fall. And we're going to walk with Jesus and see Jesus. And you'd be ahead of the game. But if you read one Psalm a day, you will see God. And you'll be given examples of how to worship. And they almost always had a problem. In the context of a problem. The psalmist is always in trouble. And yet they look to God and they respond and they see. So read a psalm a day. Or I'm saying read Luke because you'll see how Jesus interacted with lost sinners in a broken world. I hope you realize people are not more lost today than they were then. And the world is not more broken than it was then. See how Jesus interacted with lost people in a broken world. But then don't stop with just that. I want you to take three to five extra minutes. Here's what some of you are missing when you say, I try to read my Bible and I don't get anything out of it. Take three to five extra minutes to engage your heart with the chapter by looking back over the chapter. You already read it. Now you just slow down and look back. Ask two questions. Lord, what are you telling me about you? From this chapter. What can I see about God? Something about him that I could take with me into this day. This is what my God's like. Second question. What are you telling me about me? Where do you see? You'll you'll find yourself in these chapters. You'll find yourself. God intended his word to show you who he is. And show you really who you are. Who he is and who you are. And you start to see those two things regularly. And they'll be emerging. You'll start to change. Lord, what are you telling me about you? Lord, what are you telling me about me? Let's do that for 30 days. Reading the Bible, praying according to the Lord's Prayer, and fasting. Consider social media. And see how you might change and the people around you might change. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you that we're not orphans. We have a heavenly father, and it's our father. We have a family. We have a family. And you've given us your spirit that Romans 8 says cries out and resonates, Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And because of Jesus, we don't have to be sheepish or timid. We can come boldly to the throne of grace day or night to find mercy to help in time of need. Oh, God, help us. May you find us in the next 30 days at the throne of grace, getting mercy. And may it enable us to live radically different, focused on something bigger and something eternal. For your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.